Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. I'm Adam Yurick, along with Jim Massessa. And today's episode features Blood Simple. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs. Joel and Ethan Cohen's career-long, darkly comic road trip through Misfit America began with this razor-sharp, hard-boiled neo-noir set somewhere in Texas, where a sleazy bar owner releases a torrent of violence with one murderous thought. Actor M. Emmett Walsh looms over the proceedings as a slippery private eye with a yellow suit, a cowboy hat, and no moral compass, and Francis McDormand's cunning debut performance set her on the road to stardom. The tight scripting and inventive style that have marked the Coen's work for decades are all here in their first film, in which cinematographer Barry Sonnenfeld abandons black and white, chiaroscuro for neon signs and jukebox colors that combine with Carter Burwell's haunting score to lurid and thrilling effect. Blending elements from pulp fiction and low-budget horror flicks, Blood Simple reinvented the film noir for a new generation, marking the arrival of a filmmaking ensemble that would transform the American independent cinema scene. This movie came out in 1984. It is only 95 minutes long. It's in color, 5.1 surround, and a 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio. And if you're following along at home, this is Criterion number 834. And this is one of the few Criterion movies that you and I both own. Yeah. Is this the only one we both own? No, no, no. I think there's a couple couple we both own. Yeah, actually, I, I guess I could have. Easily look that up on our, our little database there. Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth, Badlands. Royal Tenenbaums, Thief. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. All right. I think any movie that we both own, we've done. That's true. <laughs> but I, this is the last one, then. Yes. I think this is the last movie we both own. That is correct. Although the, the sale's going on, so who knows. Yep. So had you seen this movie before? Uh, no, and I've seen a lot of Coen Brothers movies, but I, this was their debut movie Mm -hmm. so it was kind of nice to go back and watch this and be like oh yeah that's kind of like what they did in the hudsucker proxy or yeah no country for old men or i don't know i feel like i've seen so many of their movies i also own um inside lewin davis which Mm -hmm. is in the criterion collection yeah that's that's a good one that's coen brothers that might be their only other criterion movie but i tend to love all of their movies and yeah, I, I did like this one, too. Uh, I'm glad we finally got to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, a big Coen Brothers fan. I mean, I haven't seen everything that they've done, but I always liked um, one of the first of their films that I saw uh, was Miller's Crossing, which I always liked. That's oh, yeah, really yeah. That's I good, saw like, that. Thriller. That's um, got a really good score, too. The theme, the Miller's yeah. Crossing theme is like, I have that in one of my Apple music playlists. It's so good. like Fargo is you know one of probably one of their their best movies it's really good you know I think the Coen brothers and like Paul Thomas Anderson kind of have this same style of yes their films are quite similar and just like the tone and the and their character development they use you know sometimes just some a decent amount of character or actor overlap there they've co-directed some films and sometimes it's been you know Joel and or Ethan or or Ethan doing the directing back and forth 
and they pretty much write together and then one kind of produces but whether they're credited or not they it's they're they're directing the film together sometimes they'll direct scenes together or they'll just take turns kind of directing different different aspects of the film so i mean i thought it was really good uh i definitely like the darker you know those that kind of like that film noir aspect to it is really good there was some stuff where i was watching this going like ah this really feels like somebody's first film yeah I feel like they used close-ups a lot. Mm -hmm. There were like a lot of exaggerated close-ups on inanimate objects. We've talked a long time about like um, Chekhov's gun, the idea that you know if you show a gun early on, it has to go off by the end of the film. Yeah. In this movie, the lighter is Chekhov's gun. Right. And that's emphasized so much right from the beginning that you just know like, okay, super close-up of Lauren's lighter. We know that I was like, all right, I just like wrote that down like lighter. I'm just waiting for every time it came in, the scene he was using it. And then, of course, later on in the film, he forgets it. And that becomes like kind of the motivating thing. The like close up shots you were talking about on the inanimate objects in the booklet. They talked about how Joel and Ethan Cohen were like pretty good friends with Sam Raimi. Mm -hmm. And they were following a lot of the styles that he had done at the time for more of the like gory horror movies. Uh, That makes sense. Especially in like Evil Dead. He does a lot of that close up on certain objects and the um they specifically call out this shot there's a shot outside uh i guess it's outside of julian's house when um ray comes to like yell at them and the camera like shakily zooms in at them like it's a handheld camera Mm -hmm. in evil dead they do that a lot the camera is like taped to a pole two of the like boom operators are kind of like running it in but yeah, it's, it did have that feel of like, eh, it seems like they're borrowing a lot from who their like movie idols are at the time. Yeah. I mean, even the plot line is simple in a way. Blood simple? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, the idea of just the whole film is just characters not having full context uh, on a situation and yeah. then reacting really in a really drastic way. It's the Gilligan's Island plot where like somebody just doesn't have all the information and if they only stuck around like a few minutes longer, you could avoid all this conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the stereotypical like O. Henry story where there's kind of that like, oh, that ending or it's just like, oh, yeah, okay, if you only the character knew that or and right. you, you as the audience are sitting there watching everything and you're like, you're on, you know, you, you know, the full context on everything. So you're just kind of cringing as you see these characters just kind of go in weird directions. That's kind of how a lot of their movies are, though, like Fargo or like Big Lebowski or something. There's always like uh, there's like miscommunication that had people just said, like, wait, 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 clarify what you just said. You could avoid all this conflict. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that's what makes their movies really good, though. Blood Simple is taking place in Texas. It kind of veers into this, like, this like genre of literature and film of like the Southern grotesque. For example, like Tennessee Williams and um, William Faulkner, mm. all of their plays, their novels, getting into that idea of you have these characters that are morally and essentially physically grotesque in times, too. It's not the same as like Southern Gothic literature, but it's similar in that sense of you have these dirty people, in some cases physically and morally, kind of operating in this like grungy world. Yeah. Which I've always liked. I think that's kind of, this is what really happens in real life type of thing. I think that conversation happens. Especially with like hiring the hitman and it's like, it's not this polished, like, oh yeah, it's, it's a clean getaway type of thing. I mean, the guy's like this like bumbling underhanded guy who's like faking photographs to try to make it look like they were shot in their, in their bedroom. And that character too, um, I think the casting choices were interesting. 
Um, I mean, I think this was Frances McDormand's first film. I almost didn't recognize her at first. Yeah. That was the thing with this film. I think you had some actors. You didn't really have anybody who was like a heavyweight actor at the time. There was nobody who was like a pure star, which works for it. But then there's people who are just giving like really, really great performances in comparison to people who are kind of giving like mediocre performances. Like John Getz's character, Ray, like as an actor, there wasn't much to his performance that he brought that I feel like you couldn't just swap him out with somebody else. Eh, yeah. You know, I think you've got like, I mean, M.M. at Walsh, of course, best performance in the film. He steals the movie. Yeah. I've never really seen him as a lead in any other movie. He's not, though. He's that, like, he's just a solid character actor. Yeah. We just watched uh, the 96 Romeo and Juliet. Oh, I didn't even realize. He's in that? Yeah, he's, he's just, uh, he's the guy, I'm sure he has a name, that Romeo goes to buy poison from at the end, like when he's getting ready to kill himself. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I was like, oh, like, I just saw him. <laughs> to your point, he's kind of like, he's a great background actor or like secondary character, but he really held his own here. He, he carried the movie. Yeah. Well, him and um, Dan Hedaya, Julian. Yeah, I was going to say him. He, those two guys to me are, the, they're the film. Yeah. In my opinion. Anytime they're in a scene, that's the scene I want to watch. Any scene that was just John Getz and Francis McDormand, I was kind of like, eh. I mean, Francis McDormand is a phenomenal actress, but I don't think that this is a good example of a stellar performance from her. Well, it felt like they didn't really have their chemistry. I felt like Ray and Abby. Exactly, yeah. It didn't feel like, why, why is she with him over Julian? Not that right. either of them were that great, but like, there didn't seem much difference. And she didn't really seem that interested in Ray that she would. Yeah. They went through a lot of trouble in this movie, and it just didn't seem like it was worth it. They didn't really seem like they were really going to run away together or anything like that. She is a great actress. I don't think that was a reflection on her. I think that that was kind of the way it was written. Yeah, but uh, Julian, Dan Hedaya, mm-hmm. he, I know I've seen him in other Coen Brothers movies. I think he was in the, the man, not the man who knew too much. I mean, he's in The Usual Suspects, which some people mistake oh, yeah. for being a Coen Brothers film. I thought he was in um, The Man Who Wasn't There, but I might be wrong. Yeah, maybe he wasn't in that. Again, like, I feel like I've seen... I've seen The Battle of Buster Scruggs that was on Netflix recently, mm-hmm. Inside Lewin Davis, True Grit, A Serious Man, Burn After Reading, No Country for Old Men, The Man Who Wasn't There, O Brother Where Art Thou, Big Lebowski, Fargo, Hudsucker Proxy, Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, Blood Simple. That's not all of their movies, but I would say that is the majority of them. And they do tend to reuse a lot of their cast, especially now. I feel like, uh, you know, they've used George Clooney a couple times. They use Francis McDormand all the time. Yeah. I don't think they've used... Um, M. Emmett Walsh. Yeah, because I think... So in one of the special features, he talked about how he was pretty much... You know, he's basically that guy Yeah. in the film. And they talked about how John Goodman basically became the M. Emmett Walsh for mm. the rest of their films. So he didn't really work with them. You know, he didn't work with them ever again. But, I mean, M. Emmett Walsh is in some... Like, he has some great parts. Like, he's in Fletch. He's the doctor in Fletch, which is a pretty <laughs> small role, but it's like... I think in the interview, he talked about how like his role as an actor has just been to kind of be that guy who just plays off of the other actor. Yeah. Um, and he talked about being in a um, movie with Dustin Hoffman, Straight Time. I think, is that what it was called? Straight Time? I don't think I saw that. I mean, he's been in Blade Runner. He was in. Right, right. 
I mean, of course, great, great film, uh, Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> he was uh, John Lithgow's dad in that. I mean, he's in, oh, he was in Raising Arizona. So he was in, um, I forgot about that. He was in that other movie that they were. Uh, he kind of looks like John Lithgow a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I think that's where like he just turns his performance up to 11, which it's on the borderline of just being too over the top in this film. Yeah, I mean, he is, he is so, I don't want to say extravagant, but like if this was the guy you were going to as a hitman, not that I would ever hire a hitman, but this guy just seems like so uh, spastic or like just jumpy. He's constantly got a smirk and like he just doesn't seem trustworthy like that he would get the job done. Well, I think that's where he's almost like because he's really a private investigator. Yeah. And he's really gets hired to prove and get evidence that and at least initially that Julian's wife is cheating on him and he gets that evidence and then it's kind of like, oh, well, I'm just going to hire you to kill them too. And I think you know, what's his name? Lauren. I think he looks at the situation and doesn't necessarily want to kill anybody. And he's like, well, I can just not kill them and make it look like I did. And then if they really, really try to get away, then he'll never know that they're dead or alive and I'll just take the money. Right. He's going to disappear with the money. Yeah. But then when push comes to shove, he has no problem killing everybody. Yeah, that is interesting because he doesn't kill them in the beginning and then he does kill people he doesn't kill people when he's expected to but then he does kill to cover up the fact that he was involved in all of this yeah but he has a line where he's talking to marty uh, I, I think it's around the time they're getting paid and he says something like i must have got money simple murder like this too risky there's a couple points in the movie where they make references they never say blood simple but they do make references to being, quote, simple. Yeah. In this case, it's referring to the fact that you're like, you've almost gone stupid. The murder itself has like encompassed your brain and you're not thinking straight. Here he's saying like the money, which is, I think it's like $10,000. 10000 yeah. He got like overwhelmed by the thought of that money. And so, you know, he got involved in this, quote, murder, even though he really didn't. I thought it was interesting the way he makes it look like he killed them. And this is the 80s, so there's no Photoshop, but he's showing photos, doctored photos to, I keep saying Julian, but everybody called him Marty because his last name was Marty. Mm -hmm. So he shows them these photos that make it look like there's bloody bullet holes in Ray and Abby, but I guess all he did was like dripped red ink during the development process. Is that what he did? No. He used a technique called dodging and burning. Oh, like in Photoshop, you've got dodge and burn. Yeah, the reason why the, uh, the dodge and burn icons in Photoshop are like a white circle with a line coming after it and a black circle with a line coming after it is that in a darkroom photography process, there's a the technique called burning where, so you have your enlarger that's projecting, you have the negative in the enlarger, mm -hmm. and the light comes through the enlarger, projects a positive onto the piece of paper. So you have a photosensitive piece of paper, and now that's how the image gets recorded on there. You determine how long you expose the paper for. That's like a process in there. So you know how long you're going to expose the paper for. So let's say I have to leave the enlarger on for 60 seconds to properly expose the photo that I took. Right. What you do during that process is burning is where you cover up most of the photograph except for a small area. So you've exposed the photo and then you expose it longer in one area to make that area darker. Got it. But you protect the rest of the photo so it stays the correct exposure. Dodging is the opposite of that, is where you cover up an area of the photo to lighten it, but not affect the rest of the photo. And that's done very effectively by 
when you do this, you have to move the, so let, let's say you have like a, you're on an 8x10 photo, and you took a picture of uh, a mountain scene, and the sky is too bright, and you want to darken it. You would basically cut a hole in a piece of board, and you need to move that back and forth over that area, because if you don't, you'll see the outline of the hole of the piece of paper you took. Or vice versa for dodging, you have like a piece of cardboard that's cut into a circle on the end of a, a really thin wire. You need to move that back and forth and kind of blur it over that area because you'll get the direct shape. So if you look at what he did, he did that. He just cut really small holes and he just held it over there to make it look like he burned that in to the where it was so overexposed that it made it black got it and then he just kind of did that with a little thing where he was just moving a little thing back and forth on the guy's arm to make like a blood trail that's essentially the technique that he was doing to do that because it was all black and white right so he was able to make it look like the blood was going to show up as dark gray or black so he didn't have to worry about the color aspect of it by just showing him those things and i mean like you can tell it's faked it doesn't look it's not very convincing well, we can tell it's fake. I wonder, like... Well, yeah, but Marty probably didn't, couldn't tell, so... Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a thing, so... It's funny, like, back in the days of shooting black and white films, they didn't really use fake blood, because why would you go through the effort of making fake blood? Because it's just black and white. So, like, in Psycho, the blood that's running down and falling off of her body and, and, and running down the drain is actually a um, slightly more, uh, like they thinned out chocolate syrup because it looked like blood on screen and they didn't actually need to make fake blood. So yeah. it makes it less expensive and easier to deal with. Well, right. So there was a whole dissertation on what dodging and burning is <laughs> in a darkroom photography process. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he's good at that kind of stuff. He's just not great at actual, I don't know. I guess he kind of was good at killing when he finally got around to it. No, not even then, not really. Like, I don't think he was good at anything he did. He was good at kind of stalking people. But even then, like at the beginning of the movie, he drives a Volkswagen Beetle, so a very recognizable car, even in the era that the film was being shot in. Like, and the car itself, like, was run down, like it wasn't nondescript. And they know they're being followed. So he's okay at tailing people. He calls them on the like, oh, that's Marty who calls him on the phone at one point. But then he calls them later and talks to them on the phone, like, being real creepy. Yeah. He's good at, like, the stakeout and the getting pictures of people. But then at the end of the film, when he tries to shoot the guy through the window, he kills that guy. But then he, like, you know, I mean, obviously he dies at the end. Right. Even when he was staking out Ray and Abby at their house when he took the pictures, he parked right outside their bedroom window because the, the camera, you know, shows us we're looking at his car through their bedroom window. Yeah. He's right out front. He didn't wear gloves when he went inside. He didn't bring his own gun. He used Abby's gun, which... He did that on purpose, yeah. Yeah, but he didn't even bring one, like, as a backup. He didn't bring a flashlight. He was using his Zippo when he was walking around their house. He wore wooden-heeled shoes (laughs) for, like, sneaking around. (laughs) And then when he was in Marty's office later, obviously he left the Zippo there by accident. But he also is smoking Marty's cigarettes and leaves them in the ashtray, which I guess maybe DNA wasn't a huge thing back in the early 80s, but now you'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like they're going to know you were there. I mean, if we want to talk about people not paying attention to the massive trail of evidence they're leaving, <laughs> it is really when Ray goes back to the office and sees Marty there. Yeah. And he tries to clean up after who he thinks Abby had shot and killed. And he's, like, using his windbreaker to mop up the blood, which is just, like, not working. His fingerprints are everywhere. Yeah. 
He's just getting blood everywhere, and then he just puts him in the car, so blood all over the car. In his own car, yeah. His own car, blood everywhere. He doesn't use the incinerator, which he could have done, and he made he was like deciding to do, and he decided not to, which was just a dumb move. Then he goes and he buries him in the middle of a field. So he's in a field that had just been plowed, didn't have you know anything in it. So he's got his tire tracks clearly across the field into the middle. Right. He buries him maybe a foot and a half to two feet deep, it looks like, that hole. So not very deep. And he's still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. I mean, he's going to die. Like he's gonna, He clearly dies. He's so wounded that he's not going to be able to get out of that. And the field isn't like you. It's in view of the house of like the farmer. Like it's clearly in view. And he stays there till the daylight. So Yeah, exactly. He stays there till the daylight. He's smoking a cigarette and he flicks the cigarette into the field. And I'm just like, what? And not only that, you know, he's going to see the tire tracks. The farmer's right. going to see the tire tracks because it's, you can, they're so deep across the field. Yeah. I mean, it almost was like, it reminded me of Fargo because they find the guy along the side of the road or whatever. And it's just like, oh my gosh, this is just kind of like, I feel like they stole that idea of like, oh, I guess if somebody kind of just left the body on the side of the road, like, you know, Ray did in Blood Simple. Let's just use that as the opening scene of Fargo. Well, and Julian Marty does get out of the car because he's not dead. Oh, yeah. Ray like pulls over to the side of the road and then when he looks back, the door is open and Marty had like crawled out and is crawling down the road. Yeah, that's the cover of the Criterion Blu-ray is that kind of is that scene. Yeah. And then a truck starts coming and, you know, you think Ray's going to get caught with this body in the road, but he manages to hide him in time. But that leads to a very cool transition, like film transition later on. There were a couple in this movie, mm-hmm. but there was a, a scene where Maurice who we haven't really talked about, but he's like the what the bartender, I guess, at the bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, his finger is pointing down, ready to press an answering machine button. And that shot transitions into Ray, Ray's finger in the same pointing down position, pressing into the blood stain in the seat of his car. Like he pushes down and like the blood yeah. kind of wells up. But <laughs> it was a really, it was a great transition. Yeah, it was a good shot. Yeah. There was a transition where after Lauren shoots Marty in the bar office, the camera like starts pulling back and up. So we're looking down on Marty slumped over through the spinning fan blades that were above him, the ceiling fan. Mm-hmm. Eventually, because the blades are now between the camera and Marty. So it's, you know, kind of wiping the camera. And eventually one of the wipes just wipes into the next scene. It does like a wipe transition. Mm-hmm. For a first film, I felt like even just those two were great. But there was a, a really weird one where Abby is standing in Marty's office and she kind of like falls backwards. And that transitions into her falling backwards into like the pillow of her bed. It wasn't just a transition. It was like they must have brought in a prop bed behind her and she was standing up and maybe just walked backwards to make it look like she had fallen like you were looking down from the top. It was like something you would see in a music video or something. The cinematography was really good for, you know, well, they had so Barry Sonfeld was the cinematographer. He did this with them and then he did he did Raising Arizona, but he also did big he did when harry met sally he did miller's crossing Hmm. and he also did misery and then as a director he went on to do like the adams family get shorty men in black he did wild wild west oh wow i think he did all three men in black films he did um like a bunch of tv movies and stuff like that but i think from like a cinematography perspective i mean i think he really nailed that look in that feel like just the the darkness of the scenes and you know the way the characters were lit i thought was really really good just kind of got that like CD vibe yeah. throughout the whole film. Criterion references like noir a lot with this film. Yeah. It is noir like, but 
like dirty, gritty, uh, like more modern as in not like an old black and white noir film. It, it just seems like it really took place in Texas. And there's scenes where uh, Lauren and Emmett Walsh is talking and there's actually like flies that kind of like land on his face. Mm-hmm. It's dirty. But yeah, it does still have that like noir film. And a lot of that is the cinematography. It does also really have the same vibe as Raising Arizona. They're both southern western settings. A lot of the uh the outside shots kind of felt the same way. The cinematography combined with the score, which I also thought was really good in this movie and uh Carter Burwell who's I mean his IMDb is just crazy with the amount of movies that he's done. You know, and he's done a lot of the Coen Brother films, if not almost all of them. I think the big thing for me was the way that it was a mix. It wasn't just the score, but it was also the sound design. I thought that for the film, like it was, it did some really cool stuff that, uh, you know, with combining that they had a very simple piano score. Yeah. So very straightforward, like theme throughout the film. And then the way it was able to use sound effects to kind of really emphasize that. And specifically, it was the ceiling fans. I don't know if you noticed, but anytime there was a tense moment in the film, there was always a ceiling fan in the room. Mm-hmm. And there was that like thumping of the ceiling fan. I think we could probably. Yeah, my dog didn't like that. Didn't like it, no. But I thought that you kind of would hear that build up as that sound of the ceiling fan um, happened in the a couple times in the scene in the bar, you know, back in Marty's office, and then especially in the scenes in the hotel rooms where there was a ceiling fan beginning in the film. You kind of would just hear that, and they would just subtly raise the volume of the fan in the background of the of the soundtrack when the moments were getting tenser and tenser, which that was kind of a cool combination just to use that ambiance of of any scene and just being able to incorporate that into the into the soundtrack was great there's a scene where i think like towards the beginning marty kidnaps abby quote kidnaps but her breathing is intensifying and it transitions into that rhythm of the ceiling fan i thought i was like mishearing at first and I actually rewound and it was just like the huh, 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 yeah and became the vroom, yeah vroom, vroom. yeah they had a couple good songs i'm a believer louie louie that wasn't really the score. The score was actually really nice and like it fit well. It wasn't too overpowering. I think the one song that was It's the Same Old Song by the Four Tops. Yeah. That was the song that just was repeated throughout the film. Now it's the same old song, but with a I was trying to think if there was more meaning into that idea of like the uh, of the song other than it's you know it's the same old song but at the same time it's kind of like when you think about the uh the movie itself is it sort of a metaphor for like it's the same thing over and over and over again yeah you know and, and the song's about like breaking it's like a breakup song so it's about people going away like breaking up and then like being haunted by that person's memory essentially i just thought it was kind of an interesting choice there was um a few spots where I guess audio and visual cues were just kind of, I don't want to say jump scares. Mm-hmm. They like really emphasize like what else was happening without really being directly correlated. Marty is yelling at Ray outside of the bar, like towards the beginning. And right after he yells, there's a bug zapper behind him and the bug zapper just like pops. It just emphasizes that anger he just had. And then there was a scene where Ray and Abby are kind of like fighting inside just inside their front door so the screen door going outside is right next to them and ray 
was like just about to tell Abby that Marty was alive when he buried him. And it's like real tense. And um, the newspaper man just had like flung a newspaper and it hits the screen door like. Oh, yeah, that made me jump. And he doesn't flinch, but we jump because it's so tense and it's like unexpected thing happens. That's kind of like real life. It's not a jump scare. It's just like other things are happening in their world. Yeah, I know. I thought they were really good at kind of using that and using those sound effects and those moments to kind of like jolt the audience. I thought they worked really, really well. I also felt like uh, John Getz, Ray. He kind of looked like a young James Franco or, or one of the Francos. Yeah, I could see that. He like smiled and kind of his like eyes were a little droopy. And then uh, I felt like young Francis McDormand looked like a young Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, I could see that too. I feel like in every film I've seen her in, it's like 20 years later. Right. <laughs> and so she's 20 years older. I definitely did not even really recognize her at all at first. I was like, I knew, I knew it was her, but she definitely looked a lot different. If you ever go back and watch in the first Halloween movie, I finally went back and watched that uh, last year. Mm-hmm. And Jamie Lee Curtis is just so young in that. I felt the same way where I'm like, I know that's her, but she just looks so different from every other movie I've ever seen her in. Yeah. I feel like Frances McDormand, they kind of make her up in later movies to look older or more worn down than she really is. Yeah. And in this movie, she's supposed to be that young, carefree woman who's just making poor decisions until the end. I mean, she's really the last person standing in the end of this movie. Literally, I think everyone else, uh, Maurice, I guess is, he's still alive, but he's not a main character. No, no, not really. Yeah, he's not a main character. Well, the ending of the movie is kind of pretty suspenseful, and it's like, oh, yeah, turn the lights off. We're in this thing with no curtains on the windows, and it's like, yeah, you're going to get shot. Like, it's just a matter of time. (laughs) It was kind of interesting. The gun that she shoots Lauren with at the end of the film is her gun that she took from Marty, right? Yeah. And that's the same gun that was in his coat pocket when Marty had the gun in the pocket, and he was trying to shoot, and he was just firing like there was nothing in the chamber. So I'm wondering, like, at what point did the gun get reloaded? Or did the barrel get rotated to the empty chambers? And that was kind of an open question for me where I was, it wasn't clear, like who put more bullets in that gun? Mm. She shoots him once, I think there's one bullet left. And why wouldn't she wait till he like at least opens the door a little bit? Like she shot like right as he walked. So she doesn't even know it's Lauren. That's true. She's convinced it's Ray, like who clawed his way out of the grave or is like a zombie or something. Marty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marty. Sorry. Like, coming back to, like, seek revenge. Well, I don't think she knows that he's dead. Well, d- doesn't Ray? I don't think it's ever made clear to her that he's actually dead. Hmm. I think there's this unspoken, like, Ray's like, you know what you did, and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, what are you talking about? I haven't done anything funny. What was that? He interprets her indifference and, you know, cluelessness is what's going on as just being like a sociopath and not wanting to talk about it. And so she thinks he did something to Ray and he thinks she killed Ray. Right. And like he cleaned up after it. It's that miscommunication. Yeah. Again, it goes all back to that. If he would just say like, did you kill him? They could have cleared it all up right then. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you just have Lauren just trying to get the evidence back. But there's so much more evidence that he left. Right. But I guess that's the most identifiable thing because his name's on it. He makes such a racket trying to kill Abby at the end that, like, every neighbor would have had to have heard that. Yeah. Because he shoots through the wall, I don't know, like seven, eight times and then punching a hole through the wall to get at her. Yeah. 
I mean, that whole scene is just insane because Abby has gone from like not really showing any unusually like smart characteristics to like, yeah, she's hiding from him. She throws her shoe at the light bulb to like break the light. So the lights go out so we can't find her. She climbs out on a window ledge and like makes her way to another apartment. She like stabs his hand, pins him to the window ledge. And then she's able to like shoot him without even, yeah. like she can tell from the sound where he is on the other side of the wall. Mm -hmm. Amazing choices and something you would see in like a horror movie when the final person is being stalked. But yeah, it was great, but it was just so like out of left field. Like I wasn't expecting any of that. Yeah. I mean, even there I questioned like, why wouldn't she, once she got into the other side, like why wouldn't she just run away? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the sound of her opening the other door, but still. And like she gets lucky enough to stab him. (laughs) Threw his hand into the wood, you know, I just, that was just convenient. Yeah, that was a, oof, that was a tough scene to watch. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like, when she does shoot him, then she hears him starting to laugh at the end, and that's when she realizes, oh, that's not Marty, this is somebody else. I'm not afraid of you, Marty. Well, man, if I see him, I'll sure give him a message. And he starts laughing because he realizes, oh, she shot me because she thought I was Marty. She doesn't even know who I am. Yeah. And it just kind of ends there. You know, he's staring up at this dripping sink. He's under the sink where he fell and the water's dripping down on him. Well, that was what was interesting, too. What I, like, I thought was kind of odd was at the end there, he sees the drip of water, and it never actually falls. Yeah. It's pooling and pooling and pooling, and he has this look of horror on his face because it's going to, like, hit him in the head. Is that just his face of horror because, like, there's a lot of pain from being shot now, or is he really just terrified of this drop of water hitting him in the face? Yeah. That was kind of weird. I mean, especially because earlier in the film, there's a couple scenes where flies land on his head and like are landing and like crawling around his ears and stuff like that whether he felt it or not when he was filming he didn't flinch yeah going back to where we were talking about like the the seediness and the dirtiness of the characters i thought that really added to that to these flies were just kind of landing on him yeah i don't think that was intentional i think it happened and they used it but the water pulling at the end i felt like maybe that's like a metaphor for death he's laying there dying and the water's pooling and it's about to fall like death is coming but The movie ends before we see that. Yeah, that's fair. And we don't really know he died. Overall, I'd say I really enjoyed this movie, and I feel like we should watch some other Coen Brothers movies. But I think Inside Lewin Davis is the only other. Uh, Yeah, that's the only other one that they have in that I've seen. I don't think they have any other anything else in there. But I mean, most of their films have gone on to be like really huge. Oh, yeah. Really huge movies. So that's the struggle is like getting, of course, Criterion. Pays for the distribution rights for stuff, so it's just a matter of getting access to those. Yeah, I feel like Big Lebowski is probably one of their most yeah. popular, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's, it's more of like a cult popularity. But when I was a kid, my sister and I, we watched The Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, that's a good one. A ton of times. And I feel like not a lot of people have seen that one, but I think that's hilarious. Like, Tim Robbins is great in that. And Oh Brother, Where Art Thou was pretty popular. I guess Fargo was pretty popular. Oh, yeah, Fargo was really... That was a big one. I had No Country for Old Men won them all those Oscars. So Right. I'm very surprised that hasn't made its way to Criterion yet. And I don't know if that's a, a rights thing, but that just feels like... I get that this is probably in the Criterion because it's their first... Yeah. It's their like entry into the, the industry. But 
No Country for Old Men is just amazing. <laughs> More so, I guess, for the acting. But you also said that the Coen Brothers movies also feel a lot like Paul Thomas. An- no, uh, who did you say? Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which he has a couple of films in Punch Drunk Love. I think No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood came out in the same year. And to me, those films are just, they're so intertwined in my head. Yeah. And I know that they're about different things, but they both take place in the West. I felt like the cinematography on them is very similar. They're both very like dark and direct, and there's not really like a love story. So yeah, and, and that's Paul Thomas Anderson and Coen Brothers. Yeah, I'd love to watch a Paul Thomas Anderson movie as well. Only Punch Drunk Love is in. Yeah, that's not my favorite, but <laughs> maybe they'll add something soon. One of my favorite movies is... uh magnolia oh yeah i think that's probably his best film i actually had so you know in that film when they when it rains frogs Mm -hmm. i had one of the prop frogs from the film (laughs) it's this big rubber frog that they like were dropping from the sky and stuff like that or shooting out of cannons in disney world at what was i guess it's called hollywood studios now the last time i was there it was called that or mgm or whatever when you first walk into the park off to the left there was a little shop that a lot of people didn't go into, and they sold actual screen-used film props. Wow. You could pay thousands and thousands of dollars for like an entire outfit worn by somebody in a movie. But I remember going in there, I'm like, oh, they have all this cool stuff. I think it was $20, $20 or $25 for the frog. And I was like, I have to get something. Like, I want a screen-used prop. And I had, and I so I bought it. It was like 25 bucks. And I had like the certificate of authenticity and everything. And I don't know, I don't know where it is. It was this like really gummy, huge, like life-size frog that was like made of silicone or something like that. What was I going to do? Put it in a shadow box or something like that and <laughs> hang it on my wall? It's so weird. Yeah, it's a very random prop to have. <laughs> it is a random prop. But I, at the time, I like, I, that was, you know, at the time when I was, this was, I don't even know how long ago, 15 years ago, 10. It was one of my favorite movies. And so it was like, oh, that's awesome to get that. Great John C. Riley character in that film, too. Lots of really good. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Even Tom Cruise. Like, Yeah. Did you see The Master at all? Yeah, yeah. That's a good... Because that's, that's another yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, and mm-hmm. that's also Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yep. I feel like if any of his movies were going to get into Criterion, either The Master or like Phantom Thread... Yeah, Phantom Thread might... I mean, obviously, there will be blood. I mean, most of his films kind of fit into that. They kind of deserve the Criterion treatment. I feel like The Master... It's beautiful to watch, but it's also got such an amazing cast. Phantom Thread, I think, is Daniel Day-Lewis's last real movie. Yeah. I think he, quote, retired after that, Mm -hmm. so I could see that making it in. I also liked Inherent Vice, but I don't think many people like that movie. I don't think I've seen that. Visually, it's really good, and Joaquin Phoenix is kind of like a screwball in that, Mm -hmm. but the story's kind of sloppy. That's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes at criteriononthecouch.com slash bloodsimple. If you liked this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, It helps our podcast be found by other fans out there. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, we are at Criterion Couch. And on Instagram, we are at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Yurek with Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.